we're here in the sanctuary today, and we call it the worship center. But it truly is a sanctuary. Because a sanctuary, by definition, is a place of refuge and safety. That's what a sanctuary is. Now, I don't know about you, but I already feel safe here. Amen? I feel safe here because, you see, I know I'm supposed to be here. And more importantly than that, I want to be here. So this, for me, is just naturally a place of safety. But did you ever think about why churches call the place where we worship the living God? Did you ever think about why churches call this place a sanctuary, a refuge, a safe place? Why do they do that? Because it is. It is a refuge. And it is a safe place. But in what respect is it safe? And then safe from what? Safe from what? Now, many of you, perhaps most of you, probably don't even know that uh, as the church leadership here, we take this safety and protection thing, uh, we take it really seriously. And so it's a, it's a priority, and frankly, it's one of our top priorities. Because safety and protection is important, amen? So I hope you're good with that because it's a crazy world out there. It is a crazy world out there. And this is a safe place. Now, I don't have time this morning to talk about and share all the details about the church's safety plan and the procedures that are in place and the policy and all of that. But I do want to give you a visual example of what that looks like. The physical safety of this place is important. And so, Pastor Ty, do your thing. I don't know, man. All of a sudden, I feel pretty safe. <laughs> see, see, this is awesome. There's a whole system in place around a, a whole system in place around here to protect this church. Look around. The doors are protected. The pulpit. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know. When I get to heaven, I'd like to look like this. <laughs> I don't know if it's possible. But you see, the nursery is safe. I mean, other than Richie. The nursery, <laughs> hey, they're your kids. The nursery is safe. The kingdom kids are safe. This church sanctuary people is, it is safe here. Now, just so you know, Pastor Tyler and I, we've had a disagreement over time about this whole safety thing. And this protection thing, but no more. <laughs> you see, I'm a total convert now to the safety and protection of the body. Why? 
because Pastor Ty challenged me. And when I thought that it wasn't that important, I mean, we're at church, for goodness sakes. What's going to happen at church? Hmm. Uh, I hear some groans. You see, Pastor Ty, when, when I said we don't need all of this, we don't need, we just don't need it all. And he challenged me and he said, so, you call yourself a shepherd or not? Well, see, that made me think because what we really got going on here is the safety and protection of the body. And the way it looks is when he turns the table on me and he says, listen, a shepherd protects the body. Protection is important. You see, it's all about physical protection, right? You see, I was wrong. I was wrong when Pastor Ty told me, Phil, we have to watch the doors. We have to protect the sanctuary. We must keep out that that must be kept out in order to protect the flock. 30 years as a cop. But he was 30 years as a cop with a pastor's heart. And now he's here as a pastor. But he still has the cop in him, doesn't he? And I am so grateful. Forgive me, brother. (laughs) For giving you so much grief. Because I don't know about you, but I feel safe and protected. Obviously. Amen? All right. The doors are protected. The pulpit is protected. The kids are protected. We are in a safe place. Amen? All right. Listen, guys, you don't have to stay up here for the whole two hours. I'm gonna... This could take a long time. Thank you, though. So I hope you feel really comfortable right now because as you sit in this place knowing that there is a plan and there are people in place and that should give you some real freedom. The first freedom that you should have is the freedom to be not concerned in the least about any threat that might come from the outside or even the inside of this place. Amen. All right. And the other freedom that you should have here always, always, always is the physical freedom is one thing, but the freedom to worship and the freedom to just be here and be Just be free in this place, church. We're going to jump into the Word of God, but let's pray first, shall we? Lord, we're going to prepare to open your Word now. It is your Word of truth. This morning, I pray, God, that you would speak to each of us, God, as only you can do. We invite you into this place, Holy Spirit, and I pray that you would give us ears to hear and a heart to receive. And do whatever is your will for each of us, individually and collectively, for kingdom purposes. And all, Lord, to your glory. Amen. All right, so, you know, uh, there is much more 
to the sanctuary than the reality of your feeling pretty comfortable from any outside physical threat in this place, right? There's much more to the sanctuary than that. Because there is a much greater threat out there. And we must keep it out of the church. We must. We need just as much protection against it as any physical threat that we might enjoy. You see, it's a threat that left unattended or ignored has the potential to completely destroy the place. It's an egregious threat, and yet it's subtle. The threat is just outside those doors. And we simply cannot let it in. So just as this sanctuary is physically protected, thank you, Pastor Ty. This morning, the doors of this place must be spiritually protected as well. So what is it that the church needs to be protected from? What is it? What is it? The world. The church needs to be protected from the culture. The church needs to be protected from the culture because it's where you live. It's what you're exposed to. It's what, if you're not careful, you may be drowning in right now, the culture. So let me explain this and give you some context because what exactly is the culture and why is it important to protect the church from it? Good question, right? Eileen, could you, could you put up the culture screen? You see, culture that we need to be protected from is defined as the set of morals, values, and social practices associated with a society. Better put, I like the characteristic features of everyday existence shared by people. That's what's going on out there. It's the set of morals, values, and social practices associated with the society, and we have to protect ourselves against that. Now, I want to give you some historical context text here and some current American cultural facts, statistics, and examples. And I want you to pay attention to the definition of culture up here while it's on the screen. And I just keep it up if you would, please. Because the culture is the morals, the values, and the social practices of our everyday existence. So here goes. Now bear with me because there is quite an age diversity in this room today. Yes? Young people, raise your hand. This should be fun. <laughs> Is lying a sin? There are young people and there are not so young people in this room. And they've all had a diverse cultural experience, quite frankly, just by their age. So some of you have never known a time when a television, now I think they call them monitors, didn't look like this. Big, flat, and hanging on a wall. Some of us have never known anything but that. But there's other people, the ones that lied when they raised their hands that said they were young. Mark. 
Because, you see, televisions, for some of us, used to be these gigantic things that were really deep and thick, and they were in a piece of furniture that sat on the ground, right? And there was an antenna on the roof to get the all 13, actually, there was like 11 or 10 channels that were available, and they were, it was in black and white, there was no color, and there was no remote control, and it was only on till 11 o'clock. And then at 11 o'clock, every channel went off the air and looked like this. Uh, remember that? There was no programming at night. And then in the morning when the programs came back on, you had television. But you see, I think that was a good change. I kind of like big flat screens, especially 75 inch ones. That's a nice television. But there's another great cultural change, and that has been the way we communicate. Now, all of us have been associated with this one in one way or another. So remember phone booths? Okay, remember phone booths? Try to find one today. Remember, not too many years ago, you could drive down the highway and you felt so comfortable because they had these little blue boxes on the side with a, with a, with a, a, a solar panel on it for power. And if you ever ran out of gas or had a flat tire, you could walk to the call box and you could call for help and what about landlines see landlines are virtually a thing of the past unless you're my wife of course who just refuses to get rid of her landline for some reason that's <sighs> who has a landline oh my gosh that surprises me. See, when I was a kid, not only were there only landlines, but there were party lines. I grew up right down the street over here on Mercer Street. And when, when I was a kid, the first time I was allowed to use the phone, we had a party line. And sometimes you would pick up the phone and somebody else was on it. But you could listen. And if you don't know what a party line is... Find an old person and after church, ask them. But now we use these, don't we? A personal communication device. It's either a simple phone or you can share data with it. You can forget to turn it off in church and have the pastor throw you under the bus. You can take photographs. It's a flashlight, and you can ask it for navigation. Siri, how do I get to Starbucks? But here's an interesting fact. You see, in 1960, I know some of you don't remember that, but many of you do. In 1960, there were one million international phone calls made total for the year. In 2017, there were one million international phone calls made every hour. See, the, the culture has converted to instant communication. Our culture values instant everything. Our culture values instant everything. See, in my lifetime, the cultural norm has gone to the Pledge of Allegiance and prayer when I went to grammar school here to 
a complete reinterpretation of the separation of church and state in the Constitution by some to mean that you can't even name the name of Jesus in school unless you're cursing, of course. And don't even think about praying or bringing a Bible. Now, there's a cultural value and social practice that has radically changed. Amen? But I think we've got to forget about all that stuff. It's all in the past. And so things change over time. And who really cares all about all that historical stuff? Because we're not going back. You cannot go back. See, what I think the church needs currently, we need a current cultural reality check. We need a current cultural reality check because culture is the characteristic features of everyday existence shared by people. This is the culture we live in. You ready? In the United States government right now has $20 trillion in debt. And if you think that's bad, you, consumer, have $4 trillion in debt. In the United States, there's $4 trillion in debt. Now, I'm trying to wrap my mind around what a trillion dollars is. And so this is how I figured it out. Okay, a trillion is a thousand billions, right? Somebody help me math majors. <laughs> Kathy Brown. Okay, trust me, a trillion is a thousand billions and a billion is a thousand millions. So let's say that you had a bunch of thousand dollar bills laying around the house. I've been told there's thousand dollar bills. You don't see them in circulation. So you guys must have them at the house. And if you do, I can't wait till next week's offering. So let's say that you have a bunch of thousand dollar bills laying around the house. I don't, but I have some ones and fives. And we're going to try to get to a trillion dollars here. Okay. So you have a bunch of $1,000 bills laying around the house and you want to get to a million dollars. So take a $1,000 bill and keep stacking them, the ones that are in your dresser. Keep stacking them until the stack is four inches tall. And when you have a four-inch stack of $1,000 bills, you got a million bucks. Cool. Now, to get to a billion dollars, you got to take that four-inch stack and you got you to go back into your closet and get some more $1,000 bills and keep stacking them on top. And that stack, to get to a billion dollars, there's a thousand dollar bills, and the stack is now 360 feet tall. But it's very not balanced when it's that tall. So I'm going to ask you to take that stack of bills that you stack on top of one another, and I'm going to tell you to lay them on their side. And a billion dollars is thousand dollars bills in a stack that are the width of the church's property line. Okay? Now, now, if you're going to get to a trillion dollars with those thousand dollar bills, you're going to have to go back to your closet and get some more thousand dollar bills because there's going to be a lot of them. Because that stack now of thousand dollar bills to get to a trillion dollars is three hundred and thirty eight thousand feet tall. Now, that's if you laid them down on their side, sixty four miles. And that's $1 trillion and $1,000 bills. And to get the $4 trillion, which is the amount of debt that you have, you now have 256 miles of $1,000 bills laid flat like this. 
to get to a trillion dollars. That's four trillion dollars, which is how much debt you have in the United States as a consumer. Our culture values debt. We simply refuse to live within our means. And that's part of the culture in the good old U.S. of A. Okay, so it's no big deal. We got televisions. That's a good thing. I don't like the old TVs. We got communication devices. That's a good thing. I never was fond of party lines. We have instant everything. That's not so bad. We got money and we got debt. Well, that's kind of a problem, but it's no big deal. But now let me share this with you because this is our culture too. There are 33,000 active criminal gangs in the United States with 1.4 million known gang members. The average American boy in the United States of America will spend 10,000 hours playing video games before his 21st birthday. That means that he will spend eight hours a day, five days a week, 52 weeks a year for 4.8 years playing video games before he is 21. But hang on. Sit tight. Because an estimated 89% of all pornography produced in the United States goes out into the world. 89% of the world's pornography is produced in the United States. And there are 750,000 registered sex offenders in the United States. Get it? That's the culture. And the world's largest pornography site put out a statistic for 2018 and reported that in 2018 there were 100 million visits to that pornographic site every day. Every day, church. Is it any wonder at all that Jesus said in John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Because in this world you will have trouble. You see, at its core, nothing much has changed because Ecclesiastes simply says this, what has been will be again. And what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. But there is a change now, church, because the culture is in your face. Instant everything. The culture is in your face. The morals, the values, the social practices of our everyday existence has come out from behind the shed and it is in your face. Does that disturb you? Have you even thought about it? Is the culture having an effect on the church? Oh, you bet it is. This is our American culture. Is it having an effect on the church? You bet it is. Listen, we got to be really honest here. This is not easy, but it's real. 
This is a reality check. As Christians, that is Christ-centered, Bible-believing, passionate followers of Jesus. We are called to love Him, Jesus, with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. Jesus calls us that to be all in with Him. We have to be all in with Him because the culture is in your face. He wants us to be all in with Him as He is all in for you. That was His first and greatest commandment, He said. But He didn't stop there because He said the second thing that is most important. I like that. He really made it simple. Gosh, do we complicate it. He made it simple. He says, listen, love me with everything you've got and then love your neighbor just like that. And what that looks like for the church today, I think, is simply this. We just have to love and then speak the truth in love. Amen. Can we just not be afraid to speak the truth in love? This is critical for such a time as this. And why is that? Because I believe that lives are at stake. You can't sugarcoat this. This is the culture we live in. It's right out the doors. You see, the culture has been allowed to infiltrate the church. When God's plan was all along for it just to be the opposite. The church is supposed to infiltrate the culture. In some cases, the sanctuary doors have been breached. Because nobody has been watching them. Who's watching the doors? I read an article last week entitled, We All Live in Marx's World Now. Remember that guy, Karl Marx? Okay, show of hands. Karl Marx, anyone? Okay, Karl Marx was a German philosopher, economist, political theorist, and sociologist that lived in the 1800s. And he said, the author that I read, said that Karl Marx was right when he wrote that culture and everything in it is a matter of politics. Well, you know what? I read that and the hair was up on the back of my neck when I was thinking about Karl Marx because I know a little something about, about Marxism. But... I agree with that. I agree that when Karl Marx says culture and everything in it is a matter of politics. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I am not a Marxist and I'm not saying that I agree with Marx's philosophy because, after all, Marx was an atheist and a communist. He wrote the Communist Manifesto, which is the blueprint for modern communism. All communist forms of government that are after control and power their playbook is the Communist Manifesto written by Karl Marx. I don't agree with that. Because you see, Marx had no idea that was ever rooted in truth. Because he was a philosopher and philosophy typically isn't rooted in truth, nor is atheism rooted in truth. And it's about truth. 
But what I said was, I think he was right about culture and everything in it is a matter of politics. And now the painful truth about this is, is that the culture has invaded the church. Which means that politics has, invented, has, has invaded the church. Now, it's important to understand this because ultimately it has some pretty personal implications for you and me. Now, I want you to listen to me really carefully. Okay, everybody take a deep breath. Politics is not Republicans, Democrats, or Independents. Now, those groups are very political to be sure, but politics is simply competition between competing interest groups or individuals for power and control in a government or a group. Webster's Seventh New Collegiate Dictionary, 1957 version, Ernie. Politics is about competing interest groups that want to have power and control. Culture is political and it has entered the church. Church, cultural Christianity has arrived. And we're being subjected to it every day, competing interests for power and control. This isn't necessarily new, however. But in our culture, it's in your face. Culturally, politics has entered the church and it's in your face. What do I mean by that? Hang on. I'm going to tell you. Because this is what it looks like. You see, when a mainline Christian denomination has to hold a meeting and a conference to determine if issues such as same-sex marriage, homosexuality, especially in the ranks of the pastorate and church leadership, if they have to have a session to determine whether or those things are consistent and compatible with biblical truth, then... That has been settled, amen, a long time ago by God when mainline denominations are having to have conferences to make that determination. Cultural Christianity has arrived and it's in our face. This is not easy because if this topic makes you uncomfortable, and it might, and maybe it should, You have to ask yourself, why? Would it make you uncomfortable to have this discussion about same-sex marriage and homosexuality in the church and whether or not that's compatible with the Word of God or it isn't compatible with the Word of God and how you feel about it? Is it because you've been unduly influenced by the politics of the culture? Is it because you're confused or just totally ignorant of the Word of God? Because you see, if you're a cultural Christian, you have already decided by default that you are not interested in a diatheke relationship with the living God. Diatheke meaning he is the greater. We are the lesser. He's the one that sets the terms of the covenant. We either accept or reject it. We have to accept his terms, you go. Truth is still truth. Truth 
is truth. You simply don't get it both ways. And by the way, maybe a strong message, but let me tell you this. You see, our joy comes from the obedience to those same terms that this loving God has given to us because they're not a burden once we have decided that we want to be in a diatheke, greater to lesser relationship with the living God who wants our best. So we not only have to guard the doors, Ty. We not only have to guard the doors of the church, but you have to guard the door of your heart. You cannot let yourself be complacent about this. Now, just a few weeks ago, and I want you to hear me again. Please listen to my words, please. I'm simply going to share with you some recent historical fact, and I may give a comment or two from a biblical worldview point of view, not a political one, not a cultural one. At least I have to bring those two big boys back up here for some protection. Anyway, last month, this is painful. Last month, the United Methodist Church held a special session of its general council to address the issues specifically of same-sex marriage and gay clergy. The United Methodist Church pains me to even say this. These are important cultural issues of our day. Amen? We hear it a lot, don't we? We need to be sensitive to it and honest. Ultimately, the United Methodist Church voted to maintain their opposition to both same-sex marriage within their church denomination and gay clergy. Praise God. But what happened was the American contingent who could not muster the votes to make that change decided in defiance, in defiance, to accept gay clergy and same-sex marriage within the context of their denomination in the United States, in defiance to the General Assembly. This is absolutely heartbreaking. I hope you're not angry. I hope you're heartbroken. And the reason it's heartbroken is because this denomination is now split. This is a Christian denomination that is now split over this issue. You see, because they were fighting over whether or not they were cultural Christians or biblical ones. Heartbreaking. There's no more united in the United Methodist Church. It gives me great pain to even say it. And if that weren't heartbreaking enough, here's the reality, church, of the culture that we live in. In June of 2018, at the 223rd General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church USA, they passed three overtures that specifically set new boundaries and redefined religious liberty. They redefined it in affirming and celebrating. I'm going to read it verbatim from their documentation, 
affirming and celebrating the full dignity of humanity of people of all gender identities. The overture specifically wants to apologize for all of our past mistakes of being unwelcoming to the LGBTQ community and affirming that each church has the right to ordain anyone of any gender, gender identity, or sexual orientation into leadership, including the clergy, and the right, and the right to define marriage in any way so as not to discriminate against any persons of any gender identity or sexual orientation seeking to be married in the church. Now, there's going to be some unbelievers, and maybe even somebody in this room that is about to get angry, because this is a hot topic a debated topic and a topic that is culturally divisive. I get it. I get that hearing this message is uncomfortable. And I get it if somebody even wants to get angry, whether it's in this sanctuary this morning or perhaps listening to this message online later on when it gets posted. I get the fact that somebody may be angry that we're even talking about this. But it must be talked about. It's real. I submit that anybody's anger about this is going to be totally misdirected. I'm merely reading from the public record of what the church is doing because the culture has infiltrated the church and not the other way around. The one thing that we should agree with the Presbyterians about for sure, however, is this. They said that they wanted to apologize for not being welcomed into their church if you were in any of these particular groups. Well, shame on them for closing their doors to anybody that would want to come in. And shame on us if we ever closed these doors to anybody that would want to come into this place in search of of a loving relationship with a God, the God of redemption, the door has to be open. We have to look at this through a biblical lens. It's imperative because it all starts with love. 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is Love. Open the doors. Let people come in so that they can experience the love of God. Amen? Every Christ-centered, Bible-believing church, this one included, must not guard the doors about keeping those people out, must actually open the doors to invite those people in. And then when they get in, because they will hear the truth that their life is redeemable because they are loved. They are loved by you. I hear that all the time about this church. You guys are so loving. Well, it's true. And where does that come from? That's what they need to experience. And if they did, we wouldn't have to have a general assembly to have a vote whether or not we were going to abide by or not the living word of God. The doors have to remain open because Jesus even 
Even Jesus said, what did he come for? He said, I came to seek and save the lost. Well, by all means, we are not a club here. Invite the lost. Invite them. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28. You have that one, Eileen? Matthew 28, 18. The second half, that's where the B comes from. Jesus said this to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the end of the age. You see, the greatest, the greatest mission field. I am a missionary from the depths of my soul, quite frankly. And I love the fact that Mark is a missions guy. And yet the great and we should be doing worldwide missions like there's no tomorrow. And you should be giving money so that we can do that to share the word and the love of God everywhere that we go. And the greatest mission field we have is to the people that are right outside the door. But it's clear the church is under attack. The morals, values and social practices of our everyday existence. The culture has invaded the church. Now we've got to make it personal. We have to make it personal. Because we can already see what happens when the world does its best to look like the church. And then the church turns right around and does its best to look like the world. Shame on the church. William Wilberforce. Most of you know that name. A man used of God in the 1800s. To lead the charge to abolish slavery. A man that so impacted his culture, they hated him. They hated him for his faith and what he stood for, for the abolishment of slavery. And William Wilberforce said this, listen. What a difference it would be if our system of morality were based on the Bible instead of the standards devised by cultural Christians. 1820. Wilberforce clearly knew he was up against cultural Christianity in his day, including one John Newton who being convicted, this John Newton, convicted of his hollow and empty cultural Christianity, he actually came to true faith in Christ. Because John Newton was a slave trader, you see. The man came to Christ recognizing that he was a cultural Christian and not a biblical one. He comes to Christ quits the slave trade, becomes a pastor, and pens the hymn that we all know and love. Amazing grace. You see, it got personal for him. And I wonder if John Newton, in whatever his church tradition was, as a slave trader, I wonder... If he was convicted by Jesus' words, 
in Matthew 15, 8 and 9 that says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as though they were commands of God. Cultural Christianity, you see, it got very personal for him. And now let's close with this question. What about you? I include me. What about you? What are your convictions about the culture that we live in? The morals, the values, the social practices of your everyday existence. What about you? Examine yourself, church. Examine yourself like John Newton. John Newton, the slave trader. Was it cultural Christianity? Or biblical Christianity? He had to make a choice. And when he did, it was a radical transformation for him. Which is it for you? That's a challenging question that I submit we each have to ask. Which is it for you? You see, because like our Methodist and Presbyterian friends who are confronted right this very moment denominationally with the reality of the culture infiltrating the church, it really becomes a personal question, doesn't it? It's a personal question of truth and conviction. Where do you stand on it? Where do you stand? Because you see, if you're denying the truth and the inspiration of God's Word, if you are denying that, all of it or just parts of it, then trust me, you are in bondage to the culture. Second Timothy three sixteen. All scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And if you are tolerating, celebrating and intentionally and or purposefully living in sin, whatever form that may take. All the while, claiming to know and love God. When you really examine yourself, which I'm asking you to do, when you really examine yourself if you're living that way, cultural and biblical Christianity come into a clear and convicting biblical world view. Listen to this. 1 John 3, 9 and 10. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sin because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. So now we can tell who are the children of God and who are children of the devil. 
Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. A powerful and very divisive, depending on your point of view, Scripture, but true. You see, John in this epistle here is addressing the problem of self-indulgent, ongoing, disobedient to a loving God, which is sin, and its consequences. Painful Scripture. I hope it's convicting. And then finally, if you're seeking God's protection and blessing, as it's something that you are trying to achieve rather than it just becoming a byproduct of an abiding love relationship with Jesus Christ, who said in Mark 12, 30, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. But you see, is that... Your everyday practice, church, loving the Lord your God? Examine yourself. And then John, the revelator. He wrote in the book of Revelation to the church in Laodicea, where Jesus spoke directly to the church. Hard truth. And reality. Jesus said in Revelation 3.15. I know all the things you do. Speaking to the church. I know all the things you do. That you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. But since you are lukewarm water. Neither hot nor cold. I will spit you out of my mouth. I can't help but think that that is just a horrific picture. Of a church that had become so comfortable so complacent that they looked a lot like a church today that has succumbed to the pressure and the demands of the culture instead of standing up for the truth. And finally, I don't know about you, but my heart breaks. My heart breaks for believers that are so in bondage to morals and values and social practices of the culture and are so not in a passionate and loving and abiding relationship with Jesus that they are just in bondage. My heart's heavy when I see Christians that either knowingly or out of ignorance, arrogance, or pride deny that diatheke relationship. The one that God wants to have with us. Scripture tells us to engage the culture. Church, we have to engage the culture. It says to engage it, but don't be a part of it. Cultural Christianity is obviously of the world. It hurts me to even speak that truth. But we have to wake up. Because here's the reality. The reality is that we have already received a wake-up call from Jesus himself, who in Matthew 7.21 says, Listen, if there was ever a life verse, I've never had one, and I struggled with this message all week long. And came to the place 
where I realized that I had to make a choice. What is my motive? Jesus said in Matthew 7.21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. If after examining yourself, church, You are like the church at Laodicea, lukewarm. Or if the Lord, I hope, has spoken to you this morning about the perils of cultural Christianity that has invaded the church and God forbid your life. If you believe that you may have stepped over that line and that you are far from an abiding, all-in, deep, loving relationship with the Lord, I implore you this morning to guard your sanctuary, guard your heart. Because this I know. Stay with me. God is good. And all the time. You see, Jesus, Jesus is all in for you. Do you realize that? As you sit here today, do you realize Jesus is all in for you? You have total freedom in Jesus Christ. You just give your life to him. Remember John 16, 33 from earlier. Jesus, after asking his followers, do you believe? And he said this, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. But here on earth, you're going to have trials and sorrows. Anyone? Trials and sorrows? I mean, come on. But take heart. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. And that's the culture. Jesus has overcome the world and we can have peace in him. You see, in a million years, I would never have imagined that I would be a standing here. This is nuts. B, that I would be in agreement with Karl Marx. at least to the extent that the culture is political and the culture wants to compete for power and control in your life. Don't let it. Because the culture can't have your life. The truth is, 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. You have been given everything you need for life and godliness, church. Smile! Thank you! 
It's a heavy message this morning that we have to pull our head out of the sand and realize what the culture is trying to do. It is competing for your heart. But if you give your life to Jesus, just give it all. Because that's what he wants. He did it for you. Your faith. Your identity. And your eternity. Are secure. In Jesus Christ. Our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. Wow. You said, God, that he even promised that in this world we would have trials and sorrows and tribulations and trouble. And Lord, there's not a one of us here that hasn't or isn't experiencing that. And at the same time, Lord, you said, but, but take heart. Because, Lord, you have overcome the world. And the pressures that are associated with just our everyday walking around life, God, can be overcome in nobody but you. You said that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And you are. So God, would you forgive us this morning? If we've stepped over the line because of our pride or arrogance or ignorance or whatever it is, God, and allowed the culture to put us in bondage, to weigh us down, to even crush us, And God, would you remind us of your grace and your goodness and your love and that you're there for us all the time. Lord, we believe and yet we need help with our unbelief. And so God, this morning, we just want to get real. We want to get honest. And we, Lord, want to admit that we are totally dependent on you. Because in the area of the culture, as we've been trying to do it our way, it just doesn't work. So thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us the way you do. Thank you, God, that you have always given us a way out. Thank you, God, that it really doesn't matter what's happening in the culture because you are sovereign even over that. What matters is the condition of our heart. And thank you that you are the only one that can change that. So I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us in and through the truths of your word today in this message, God. And that you would embolden us to be passionate about you 
your love for us. And in our passion, we would passionately just love you back. Thank you, Jesus.